You worship team. Good morning, High Point. Today's scripture reading is going to be from Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 4 through 6 and then verses 13 through 26. This is found on page 1773 of your pew Bible. Starting from verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then from verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Amen. Thanks, Femi. Hey, everyone. I really enjoyed my break being away. I hope you enjoyed your break from me. And <clears throat> I hope you're ready to get at it today. We're doing a three-week series out of Galatians 5 and 6 called For Freedom, which is about uh, what it looks like to be free in Christ, really, in terms of our actual spiritual lives and human existence. And the, the reason why that's important is Yeah? The reason why that's important is that um, <clears throat> the way Galatians 5 starts out is it starts out with, yeah, go, no, that's good. Um, it, it's, it, it starts out with um, stand firm in the freedom for which Christ has set you free. That is, that the purpose of what Christ has done is actually not to make you God's slave, um, though we are God's servants, but actually to make us free. And um, 
this is the whole point of the book of Galatians. An entire book of the New Testament is written specifically to try to help Christians understand what it actually means to be free. And one of the reasons why this is important <clears throat> is that one of, the, um, one of the bigotries that we live um, under in the midst of a secular city is that a lot of people who are irreligious, one of their beliefs, which I believe ends up being one of their excuses for not being um, of faith, is that they have come to believe that spirituality um, or religious faith in particular, especially if it has any beliefs, is enslaving, not freeing. <clears throat> and yet, when we read the New Testament, when we read the Bible, when we read the words of Jesus, and when we read the teachings of the epistles in the, in the Bible, what we find is that the Bible teaches literally the opposite. Um, what, what Jesus actually teaches is that it's actually not true that religious faith in general, and namely Christian faith in particular, is enslaving either of mind, that we don't have a good open mind, or <clears throat> of what we're allowed to do, but that it's enormously freeing and that actually the, the natural state of humanity is enslaved. That is, and here's the very clever thing about Galatians, and it's clever because Paul isn't trying to be clever, <clears throat> is the book of Galatians is dealing with slavery for religious people. So he's not trying to answer the question, does religion make you a slave or does being irreligious make you a slave? What he's, what he's basically saying is the problem all of humanity is constantly dealing with is either being in slavery or falling back into slavery. Human beings actually don't do very well with freedom. Not the real kind. Um, and if you think we don't do very well with political freedom, you should just try spiritual and human freedom. The Bible says we're much worse at that. And we're always trading our freedoms or not understanding our freedoms or something. And yet the human— we humans are always, whether we're religious or irreligious. So he doesn't have to say irreligion makes you a slave because he doesn't believe that. He doesn't believe that human slavery, what we experience, is, is slavery because it's religious or irreligious, right? That's just a fun way for irreligious people to attack believers. But actually, there is, there is a dynamic that all humans experience and that all humans face and that all humans deal with that enslaves us. And that is, is that all of us live by two things— law and flesh. That is, we live by an external thing by which we seek to be justified and promoted. There's some standard outside of us by which we understand to be right, or we accept to be right, and it's the basis on which we accept ourselves and we expect other people to accept us, and it's the basis on which we believe that we should be able to receive whatever we should receive, and that's true in both religious and secular terms. So you can be a Christian and believe that if you fulfill the law, you do what God says, right? If you obey God, then he will love you. And in so doing, you will be accepted by God and you'll be blessed, right? Secular person believes the exact same thing, just in secular terms. That is, that if I'm a good person and I live up to whatever law I decide I believe in, then I will be justified. That is, I will be approved of. That is, I can approve of myself, and nobody can judge me, and I'm promotable. Whatever good things can come to me should come to me because I play by the right rules. And the other is the flesh. That is, that there's an internal drive inside of us or set of drives that wants to be gratified, that wants to go out and seek its pleasure, seek its joy, seek its enjoyment, right? And it's, it feels just like it's part of us. It feels like it is us. And it's saying, do this, do that. It yells really loud and, and stomps its feet really hard. and says, if you do these things, you'll be happy. You'll enjoy life. It'll be great. 
right? <clears throat> and what, what Jesus actually taught is that th- those are the two plans everybody's living their life by. One is self-justification, one is self-gratification. And most people think that even if they saw that, and even if you connected with one of them, you might be like, I guess I'm that one. Like, there's some people who be like, well, I'm a type A person. You know, I, I, yeah, I play by the rules, I, but I'm winning the game, right? Okay? And then other people are like, I don't live up to your rules. I don't have to live up to your expectations. I mean, I guess I, the second one maybe applied to me. No, 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 no. You're on both. You're on both plans. And the human heart concocts the law that we will submit to so that we can gratify ourselves the way we want to and still at least hypocritically live up to the law. There's just enough law so that you can't hurt me. And just a small enough and just a maneuverable enough amount of law so that I can do what I want. Have you, have you spent any time thinking about the modern moralities around us, especially within the secular context? Like, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, I would love to be secular, right? I mean, most of the moral systems that I come across in the secular world are very sophisticated, multisyllabic justifications for doing exactly what I already want to do. Like, I mean, I've come across some very sophisticated explanations for why I should be able to go out of fornicating whenever I want to, even if I'm married. Like, very sophisticated ones. Or like, that I don't really have to be nice to people. Or that like, I mean, just, I mean, most, in most of the moralities that we concoct, religious or irreligious, because there's a ton of religious legalisms, right? Like, if you don't, if you're not a good person, then you don't deserve any charity, right? You don't deserve mercy from me if you don't live up to the right rules, right? So what that does, it takes a whole bunch of the self-sacrificial love that Jesus demands of me towards my neighbor and just, like, gets rid of it, right? It's very convenient. So there are religious legalistic ways to create all kinds of massive self-indulgences for me, Right? And there are secular ways where I come up with very sophisticated ways to justify all the stuff that I want to do already. And yet there's just enough rules in it so that you can't hurt me too bad. You see, when you look at human beings and we look at their lives and when we look at our own hearts very carefully, what we find is both of us, that is all of us, are on both plans. There's some kind of concoction of law by which we come up with the airtight argument for ourselves that we're good people and people should be good to us. And God is one of those people if we believe in him. And we have a airtight argument for why we should be able to indulge in the self-gratification that we want to so that we can be free enough so that we can— and what we mean by that is so we can do whatever we feel like we need to to be happy. And Jesus' argument for that is, is that that is just basically a classic recipe for human slavery. That both self-justification and self-gratification are means of human slavery. When you put them both together, they're even worse. Because they have to introduce lying and hypocrisy and all kinds of concoctions that allow the two to hypocritically be with each other at the same time so that you can do whatever you want and scream at your spouse and justify yourself for acting like a child, right? And yet you can be the good guy in your own mind so you can gratify all the wrath in your heart and you can justify yourself that you're a wonderful person. And it frees you to be the kind of person you want to be, which is a horrible kind of person. And it it enslaves us in the sense of this. 
it makes us less the creatures made in the image of God we were originally created to be. And when a creature is created to live in the image of God and they live like a self-destroying, self-justifying, self-gratifying, person who is constantly self-just, self-righteous in their unrighteousness. There's nothing to describe that with other than slavery. When you give up your own being, you have lost yourself, and in it, all your true freedom— now, the, pro- the problem is, is that if you recognize that this is what Paul's going to argue, Paul's going to say you need to be free of the flesh and you need to be free of the self-justifying, living up to the law. You're no longer under the law and you can't indulge the flesh. The question then is like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Then what the heck are we aiming at, right? I mean, what is the thing that determines whether or not we're a good person? Like, what are we, what are we shooting for? Like, there still has to be something that we're shooting for, right? And if whatever's inside me that's motivating me isn't supposed to be the thing that's motivating me, what the heck is supposed to be motivating me? What's supposed to be animating me? What's supposed to be driving me? Because generally speaking, when I think about what drives me, I look to my drives. When I think about what should be motivating me, I look to my motivations. And if that's not—they're not supposed to have free reign, what the heck am I supposed to be living by? And Paul gives a very straightforward answer, and you can sum it up this way. That standing in Christ's freedom means walking in the Spirit. Standing in Christ's freedom means walking in the Spirit. Now, I need to clarify a couple definitions here really quickly. When he says walking in the Spirit, he is referring to the Spirit. That is the person of God, the Holy Spirit. He's not referring to whatever we want to call spiritual. He's saying there is a person of God, the Holy Spirit, who in character and belief and conviction is identical to Jesus, who is identical to the Father. He's the person of God himself, and that is whom we are walking in. So that spirit there is not an empty word that we can self-define however we want to. It is in, he is inconveniently defined in the person of Jesus. Okay? And then secondly, one of the things we're going to talk to is in relationship to the flesh. Now, the reason why I didn't want to define this quickly is because in the earlier translations of the NIV, the translation we use, it translated that word sarks as um, sinful nature. And that was, a, that was a good translation. They moved away from the word flesh. And the reason for that was they would, didn't want people to think in terms of body and spirit as a duality. They're like, your body's bad and your body wants to like eat ice cream and fornicate and like yell at people and so on. And there's all these animal passions coming from your reptilian brain. And then there's the spirit, which is this like free, Jesus-loving, blah, blah, blah. And, the, and so like your spiritual self has to overcome your physical self because that is utterly unchristian. Okay? That has everything to do with Greek Gnosticism from the second century and the desert, whatever, and all the spiritualism. It has nothing to do with Christianity. Because in Christian faith, the, the whole Bible is our Bible, and God in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 intentionally creates human beings to be embodied. He creates embodied human beings that he intends to have sex and eat and talk to each other and relate and to love and to enjoy a physical world that he's created. And he creates all of that with its enjoyment all built into it. And he looks at it and he says, it's very good, right? He's created us so unified in our spiritual selves and in our physical being that if I break your brain, you can't even really know what it's like to be you. That's how composite we are, how unrepentant God is about creating embodied creatures. Okay? So whatever the flesh means, it doesn't mean 
that the fact that you're in a body makes you in like, I mean, the Greeks literally said the jailhouse of the body. The spirit is in the jailhouse of the body. That's utterly unchristian, okay? However, sinful nature is actually not a very good word, word either because nat- your nature, philosophically speaking, is that which if you don't have it, you're not you anymore, okay? So if, some, if, if, if there's some, some property that you have that when I take it away, you no longer can be you, that's part of your nature, right? And if it's not, it's not part of your nature. So for example, um, if, if, so it's, there's some people who are older and they have bad hips, right? And if I say, can you imagine being in heaven in a glorified state where you're still totally you, but you have good hips, right? And they'd be like, you mean like they don't hurt? You mean like sexy hips? And I'd be like, well, maybe both. Who knows, right? And they'd be like, I, I would, be, would you still be you or would you be like, I don't have my arthritis. I'm not me, right? They'd be like, no, no, I'm, no, no, that's, no, that's fair. I could be me because I remember a me that didn't have bad hips. And I remember, I mean, I could be that. would be me, right? See, there's some people that actually think about their sin and their errors and they think about them as part of them. They're like, my mistakes, they're part of me, right? Scars have stories, right? And <clears throat> that's actually true and really false at the same time. At the same time, like on one level, it's true that all of your past experiences entered into your experience and you reflected on them and you responded to them in certain ways and they formed your character in certain ways. And in many ways, their effects are part of you. But that doesn't mean they're part of your nature. That doesn't mean that if they were taken away, you wouldn't be meaningfully you anymore. And so that, that word isn't very good. Like, we're really in a sinful condition. That is, our natures were made as human creatures made in the image of God. We're Im- divine image bearers. That divine image is now in the condition of brokenness. And all of the desires and all the capacities and the instincts and the heart and reason and will and all the things that make us up as embodied creatures are all out of whack. All the things are out of proportion with each other. So what used to be the desire to rest after after a good, honest day's work, so easily slides into sloth and laziness. A, a sense of being perturbed at the reality of injustice, a proper sense of anger that the, that the shalom, that the right wovenness of the peaceful, just world is out of whack, that sense of justice, that irkness, becomes wrath and rage and revenge and an unwillingness to forgive, right? The desire we're given to actually bond with somebody of the opposite sex to create this this miracle of a new kingdom called the family so as to produce new children and to produce the godly offspring God wants in the world so that we can both populate and subdue God's overall creation flies out to lust and fornication and adultery and, right? And so all these sins, but here's the thing that, this, here's why the word flesh matters. Because in that brokenness, our embodiedness, which has original dignity, is wielded with the voice of the flesh. That's really important to get. Being embodied, being in a body, being an embodied creature, is a dignity from God. And yet, the flesh, that is the brokenness of our human condition, uses the instincts and capacities and drives and passions that are embodied in you, that are part of chemicals and hormones and blah, blah, all that stuff, and it, it shouts at you through them. And so there's, there is a amplification of our brokenness and amplification of our desire to sin through our embodiedness. And because we're so connected in our embodiedness, it is so loud. And the flesh, this broken experience of being in this body, 
feels so directly connected to our nature of who we are, we come to believe it's us. It's me. And when I tell you, you have to leave it behind. When I tell you that Jesus wants to kill it so that you can actually become the you you were always created to be, you will believe I'm attacking your very identity, your very nature. You be, you'll believe that I'm telling you, you can't be you. But what Jesus is actually saying is, until I kill this, you can't ever be the you that I've created you to be. Christianity is the only religion in the world that takes the full embodiedness of human beings. Everything that we say is us, and Jesus comes with a sharp machete and slices the thing in half and says, it's not one thing. It is this nature in this condition, and they're not the same thing. And this part of the condition that leeches off and feeds off and contorts and breaks this beautiful image I've created, this is going to die. And we're just going to call this the flesh. Do you understand? And what Jesus is saying in the gospel is, is that what freedom looks like is walking in the Spirit, being neither under the law nor indulging and gratifying the flesh. Does that make sense? Okay, now, you can see this in these first verses of the passage for today, right? He says this. He says, listen, in this freedom that you have, don't use the freedom to indulge sinful nature. Now, now think about this. If you tell somebody they're free, what is the first thing they're going to think they can do with that? Right? Freedom is for being free, right? The first thing he says is, okay, you're free, now don't indulge. But rather, right? Serve one another in humble love for, why is it so For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command, love your neighbors yourself. Right? And then verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, see, what, see what he's saying? He's saying, he's saying, every human being says, I have to live up to this. And every human being says, I want to indulge in this. And he says, listen, if you realize that your freedom is to serve one another in love through faith, and that that's what walking by the Spirit looks like. Here's what you're going to do. You're not going to indulge the flesh. You're going to be free of that. You're going to indulge something else, the Spirit inside of you, that has been given by Christ for anybody who believes in Jesus and has come to Him, right? You're going to live by a different internal thing. And though you're not trying to live up to the law, by walking in the Spirit, you will live up to the law. That is, you'll fulfill the law without even being under it. That is, you will perform the law better than you ever could if you were trying to perform it. Because of how the Spirit empowers you and changes you and because of how you walk with Him. Now, <clears throat> we're going to go over quickly um, six ways that comes through in this passage. I promise they're all fast. This is, it's building. I'm, I'm so how, how do you actually walk in the Spirit? Because for, for a lot of us, that's still pretty vague, right? If they, oh, pastor said, the pastor said today that we should walk in the Spirit, right? I'm sure if you told that to your friends at work, they'd be like, oh, that's really profound, right? That sounds really vague is what that sounds like, right? So let's get real, real focused then, right? The, f the first example is, is that how do you walk in the Spirit? You express faith through love, Right, there's two verses that explicitly say this, right? One's, my brothers, you were called to be free. What do you do with freedom? But don't use your freedom to indulge this inclination. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Now, if you've read the old version of the NIV, you know that word humbly is new. 
serve one another humbly in love. Why they just all of a sudden throw the word humbly in there? Is it in the Greek or isn't it, right? It's not that simple. The, the word for serve one another, there's two Greek words, diakonos, where we get deacons, right? They serve people. And doulos, which is where we get bondservant or slave. So in Ephesians, like when it says slaves, obey your masters and so in the Lord and look at the right? That word slave, doulos, right? The word here, doulos. You see the irony, what Paul's saying? In the freedom that Christ has given you, don't use it to do what you want, but instead, but do what? Dula-eo. Enslave yourself? Be a bondservant under? Place yourself so under the person you're loving as your neighbor that your place in that is so beneath them and lifting them up, them up that you're, you're, you sort of take the role of a slave, right? That's a very awkward translation. So they just stuck in the word humbly, right? Because if you're like, what does it look like to like so put myself under somebody to be like a slave to them, to lift them up? It'd be like, it would be being humble, right? That's what expressing love through faith looks like. Same thing in verses 5. But we eagerly wait through the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any value. That is living up to the law. That circumcision stood for the law, right? He says, but the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Now, in our culture, we're always in this place where we take all these words as vaguely as possible and fill them in with whatever we want them to mean. That's not really true. And here it, it, it says, for in Christ, nothing matters but faith expressing itself through love. That is, once you've come to God on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that is, the character of God, true humanity, perfectly lived out in the image and, and life of Jesus, once Jesus becomes the first principle, then you can just say, all right, do you believe in him? Yes. Okay, just love. That, that's not vague, because Jesus is infinitely specific. And if you believe in the infinitely specific one who embodies love perfectly— and you have faith in him, then anything that accords with what Jesus would be like, right, that's love, and you just go do it. And now there's an infinite number of possibilities. You just have to pick some. But that's part of the dignity of being an independent human being, right? God hasn't told you which of all the infinite acts of love that you could engage in out of faith you must do. You have to pick. But it starts with, Seeing Jesus for who he is, believing that he's that, and then acting. That's the first thing that walking in the Spirit looks like, right? Second is hoping for real righteousness. Now, I'm not saying that the righteousness that we receive, we, we believe in Jesus, isn't real. Here's what I'm saying. If, if you understand the Christian message, the Christian message goes something like this. We are on the law and the self-righteousness and self-gratification plan, okay? Self-justifying and self-gratifying. And it has made a mess of our humanity— and we are deeply enslaved. We're enormously guilty, every single one of us. There's no exceptions to that. It's a little different. It's in the flavors, a little difference in how deep we've gone in certain things, but very little difference beyond that. And Jesus comes and offers us a, tr a, a transformation and a transition where he takes our guilt and puts it on himself in his death on the cross, and all of our guilt is punished in him, and his righteousness, all of his pure innocence, is credited to us through faith. Okay? And so all that you are rightly condemned for is gone in Christ, and all of his righteousness is placed on you. Now, that is—what's the, what's the first feeling that would come, right? It would be like something like relief, right? Now, relief is a feeling that can be felt by a rat, okay? 
Um, but, it's a, but it's still a true emotion, right? And we feel that when you really come to Christ. You feel this, like, relief, right? But then there's something that, that if you've experienced that, that, what's, that, what's happened, if you experience that salvation, well, the first things you're going to see is you're going to look at the one who just did this, and you are going to long to actually be like him because you're not like him at all, right? We're not like him at all. And the minute fear is put away, and the minute you're standing there theologically free, and the Jesus who saves you is in front of you, and anything has happened in your heart to lead you to anything noble, honorable, righteous, anything, anything's happened at all, the first thing that would happen is you will stand astounded at the goodness and truthful, pure beauty of Jesus himself. It will get a hold of you. There's no way it can't. And when that happens, the imputed righteousness that you've received, it's not enough. Not that it's not enough to save you. It's plenty to save you. But you want to be like, you want the change of character. You want the change of virtue. You want to be, you want to actually be like him. You don't just want to have received his innocence, his righteousness. You want to, you want to actually be like him. And then you know you'll never be like him enough that you could be justified without the righteousness he gives you. That's not, that's not the point. The point is not living under the law and living up to it. The point is Jesus himself in longing to, to be like that. Right? In verse 5 and 6 he says, by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Do you see the logic there? He's saying we've already come to Jesus. We've already received the righteousness that comes by faith. We're already set right with God. We've got all the righteousness we'll ever need to get to heaven. If, if we're nothing but rats that want to be relieved, we already have everything we could ever want. We just go back sinning now. But that's not what happens when salvation happens. When salvation happens, there's regeneration. Something happens in the heart that points us towards, some, towards real beauty again. And the, the first thing that catches our eye is the beauty of Jesus. And he's saying, for somebody who's been really converted, here's what happens. There's a hope in us for the righteousness of Jesus, the, the real righteousness of Jesus himself. And there's a hope in us for it, a longing. And we know that we can't earn it any more than we could earn our justification, our forgiveness, but through the Spirit, through God himself indwelling us, through the power of God, by faith, we, could we can receive that. There is a righteousness for which we can hope, a real change. You really can be more like Jesus this time next year than you are right this second. If you're a Christian, you probably are more like Jesus than you were when you first became a Christian. You might still be a jolly mess. It'll, it'll be very intermittent how you're like Jesus. But in God's name, you will be more like him than you were. Never enough to save yourself. Never, en never enough to not be self-condemned. But real. And it'll be the most cherished thing in your existence. Whatever that tiny drop of change really is. The third is—we're going to go a little bit faster on these, right? The third is, is that we respond to the Spirit's desires, right? It says, so, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For—this is how it works—for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the translation used to be funny. It used to be, for <clears throat> the flesh wants one thing, the Spirit wants another, so that you don't do what you want. And it sounded a little bit like going to visit your in-laws, okay? That like, <clears throat> you could, like, you're, you, you could, you could want one thing, and everybody else can want something else, and nobody's going to be happy, right? So this, this, now that you have the Holy Spirit, the, fresh, the flesh can be like, I want 74 pounds of mint, mint chocolate chip ice cream, and the Holy Spirit is like, no, we shouldn't be gluttonous, and no, you're not going to be happy, because either you please the flesh, or you please the Spirit, but you can't please everybody, right? And so it's like living the follow, follow Jesus inside your heart. It'll be like living the rest of your life at your in-laws. Right? That's not what it means. What it means is this. The flesh is so a part of us that you can refer to what the flesh wants as what you really want. That's how deep this thing called the flesh is to us. It's so loud. It's so strong. And so what he's saying is he's saying the spirit, when the spirit is there and you're walking in the spirit, you don't do what the flesh wants. That's what he's saying. Because there's a new voice. And the flesh is like, we want this! Or I want this. And the Spirit's like, yeah, I don't, I don't want that. I want this. It's very different. But the new voice creates a new desire because you, you are never going to be able to create a contra-flesh desire that's strong enough, that's clear enough. Because your desires are always going to be clouded by the flesh. The flesh is so loud, he's so angry, right? And so you're like, oh, I had this other desire that's not the flesh. No, you don't. You want to look at the porn. You want to embezzle money from the government. You want to cheat your employer out of time. You want to gossip about that crazy woman you work with. You want to neglect your kid. You want to do that stuff. And there's no, there is no you so free of that. So utterly free of that, you'd be like, no, this is me, and that's the flesh over there, and they're in conflict. No, 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 no. You need another voice. You need another voice. You need the Holy Spirit's voice. And the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, we're not doing that. That's what you need. And that's the only way the real you and the you bound up in the flesh can ever see any daylight between the two. When another voice says, no, we're going to do this, and there's a part of this whole mess that goes, right. And part of this whole mess that goes, ah! There's, um, there's this quote by, um, John Owen, and I've done this before where, like, I'll, I'll, I'll take a quote, and I'll read it, and I will play a video. Now, the video playing behind me has 1.7 billion with a B views, okay? So, pay attention to this quote that I'm going to read by John Owen, okay? And don't pay attention to the video, Okay? For unkilled sin unframes and untunes the heart by entangling its affections. It diverts the heart from a spiritual frame, and it lays hold of the heart's attention, rendering the sinful object beloved and desirable, so as expelling the love of God and the spiritual astonishment that we have in the beauty of God. Right? Okay. What did I say? Right? Anybody? Right. Okay, listen. The flesh, no matter, it doesn't matter how saved you are, okay? You can be 100% saved. The flesh is always louder than the spirit. 
Because the flesh has a rootedness and ability to wield all of your embodied passions, drives, emotions, hormones, all of that. That's why when you're going for a run and you tell your body you're going for a run, and you run like 30 meters, and it's like, oh, we got a great exercise, Nick. That was fabulous. And your legs are like, we ain't going anywhere. And like, you can feel your physical body being like, nope, we're shutting down. This isn't gonna, and you're like, no, we're gonna keep, like, laziness is right there and is literally hacking your body. And like putting a virus in the system, you're trying to run and like taking control. Like every time you try to do righteousness, you're like, how did I get hacked? Right? I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's like having the Russians inside of you. Like it's bad, right? And sorry, political humor. Um, and so what that means is you've got you've to, um, you've got to realize that the voice of the Holy Spirit is never going to be as loud because it's not going to wield all your visceral desires with it. But listen, it's just as clear. The voice of the Spirit is a clear voice. The flesh is louder than the Spirit, but it's not clearer. And if you you walk as a Christian, if you try to walk with the Spirit, if you try to look at Jesus and walk with the Spirit, no matter how loud your flesh is, you are going to hear the voice, and you are going to—and it's going to be clear. And it can be loud, especially if your flesh is really loud. If you've been feeding your flesh for years, and you don't resist it very often, I mean, your flesh knows how to throw a tantrum, and the Spirit's going to be a very simple, straightforward, this isn't what we're doing. But walking in the Spirit means listening for the voice that isn't louder but is clearer, and responding to it. The sixteenth thing is that um, is admitting what you know by the Spirit. Okay, so there's this this whole section about you know like all the the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. But it starts like this. It says, "But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law." And then he says, "What the acts of the flesh are obvious." Now think about that. He doesn't say sins are obvious. He's actually talking about the acts of the flesh. What comes out of this place? He's saying, listen, if you walk with the Spirit at all, what's coming out of the flesh and what the Spirit does is actually, it's actually really obvious. The Holy Spirit doesn't just speak to us in moments in personal conviction about what we should do when the flesh is being, let's do this, and the Spirit goes, eh, let's not do that. Or let's do this when the Spirit's, when the flesh is like, I don't want to do that. There's also a long-term structural thing where the Holy Spirit teaches us the difference between right and wrong, truth and evil, flesh and spirit, and what's motivating us and where these things are coming from, and we get to know ourselves a heck of a lot better, and we get to know the Holy Spirit a heck of a lot better, and when that process begins to happen, it turns out the acts of the flesh are really obvious. After you walk with Jesus for a little while, and you begin to walk with the Spirit, and you begin to understand some of the differences, and something comes up in you, it is not— it is not puzzling where that comes from. You get a little tiff and you start raging inside. You don't be like, oh, maybe that's the Holy Spirit saying I need to stand up for myself. That's not what happens. You're like, ah, I know where that's coming from. Right? You begin to realize the Holy Spirit's like, listen, if you lose your temper, if you lose your temper, that's the flesh. Right? Period. If you're jealous, <laughs> that's the flesh. Every time. Right? And there's that whole list. Right? And 
That's the flesh. And he's like, and what the, the Spirit does is also very obvious. It's like fruit hanging off trees. It's like shining there. It's love. That's when love looks like Christ, it's of the Spirit. Like joy, it's of the Spirit. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness. These are of the Spirit. And see, here's the, here's the issue. The flesh, it's not— it's your whole being. It's the brokenness that's in our embodied nature. It's in our will. It's in our intellect. It's in our emotions. And here's the thing about the flesh and your intellect. It doesn't want to know these things. There's part of your condition. You don't want to know. <laughs> There's a lot of things you don't want to know. And you're like, I don't know that. Life is too complicated to have such simplistic ideas. Surely, surely this is more difficult. Surely, ugh, it's not difficult. It's not more complicated. The works of the flesh are obvious. They're, for anybody who's walked with the Spirit any length of time, or walked with people who walk with the Spirit, or listened to the text the Spirit has inspired, or looked to the one that the Spirit points to, for any period of time, the works of the flesh, they're obvious. And the fruit of the Spirit is also obvious. And so what we have to do by faith is we need to admit that we know what we know. We have to tell the flesh that it affects our mind that we are lying to ourselves, that we don't know these things, and we darn well do know them. And we have to let the Spirit draw us out of our self-deception and into a place of new honesty. And the minute that happens, we will be drawn to a place of incredible clarity. Right? The fifth is we have to kill the flesh in the most brutal manner possible spiritually speaking, by the Spirit and by faith. It says in 524, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. They have done it. Past tense. You cannot, you cannot claim to have believed in the Jesus that it actually exists and believe you can do it and not engage in the process of spiritual brutality that is killing the flesh. Now, some of you have been conditioned by our culture, and some of you have been conditioned by past abuse to be terrified at brutality language. It's one of the reasons why some of you hate men, and some of you who hate men are men, okay? Because there's, there's almost no co cognitive capacity for people in our generation to admire a certain kind of brutality in manliness or womanliness in certain situations. There's nothing— as vicious as a female tiger protecting her young, as I have seen myself a number of times. And that is good. That there's a kind of brutality that is good. And the, the greatest kind of brutality is spiritual brutality, the willingness to crucify the flesh. Now, I want you to understand, for us, people have been, uh, uh, you know, we're in a line of Christians of 2,000 years. Crucify is almost a throwaway line. I'll tell you what, there isn't one person who read that in the first century that thought crucify, crucify was a throwaway word. It was a very, very vivid idea. If you'll play along with me, close your eyes for just a second. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye looking down the front of you and seeing that it's you. You recognize your forearms and your hands and all that kind of stuff, but you're actually in Roman armor. You've got like a, kind of like a cape on. You've got like a, a bronze plate mail. You've got stuff on your shins and kind of weird sandals on. Your feet are kind of dirty. And you look up, and on the ground in front of you is a cross laying on the ground. And there's four other centurions around you, and you're clearly in command. Okay, it's like a dream. 
You're the commanding officer of these five soldiers. And one of them, uh, and, and you see they have a, they have a criminal, and the criminal is literally your exact doppelganger. It is you, okay? Now you are you. You're looking at yourself, you're like, I'm me. And that person is you, except they have less clothes on because they're about to be nailed to a cross. And the other guys, three of the soldiers hold them down, and they're holding your doppelganger's right forearm on the wood, and they hand you the five-pound sledge, and they hand you the nail, and they say, he or she deserves to die and has to die. And as you take them in their hand, you look down, and you see your own face looking back at you, screaming, screaming. You'll never be happy without me. You've never been strong enough. You don't even know how to be happy without me. There's, there is no life without me. You're never going to find anything that you're looking for. I don't deserve this. I've done nothing but led you in good directions. And on and on and on. And it is your job to kneel down and put the spike between the two arm bones and to pound that thing in until there are blood splatters all over your face, all over your neck, all over your shoulders. I don't know why my phone is doing something crazy right now. Sorry. Um, and that's, and then when you're done with that, you're not done. Then you have to move over to the other side and do it again. And then when you're done, you've got to find a way to drive one through two feet. And that is the image that the Apostle Paul absolutely specifically selected to try to allow you to grapple with the spiritual reality of what it takes to be free. If you're not willing to do that, now I'm not talking about killing, I'm, I'm talking about spiritual brutality. Everybody, it says, everybody who's come to belong to Jesus has done it. The two go together. They absolutely go together. You can't try to be free in Christ and not crucify the flesh. That is, and here's what you need to understand. Spiritual brutality is the means by which all gentleness comes out of our lives. You see, if you don't have the ability to engage in spiritual brutality, if, you, if you're too squeamish personally to do what it takes to kill the flesh— you are going to be too self-involved, too self-justified, too self-gratifying, just too, just too enslaved to be the kind of self-sacrificial, putting yourself under your neighbor, almost as in the position of a slave, giving up your entire life to nurture and love and be gentle and care for, to forgive those who hurt you and who have attacked you. You, you have to be incredibly free to do that. And you can't be free of the flesh until it dies, until you put the hammer to it. And only, and only through spiritual brutality can you be actually gentle, actually peaceful, actually loving. The one is the cost of the other. And then lastly, quickly, is he ends with, so since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. You see, what, what he's arguing is, is that, well, you could come up. 
Um, what he's arguing is, is that in order to really walk with or run with God, you have to, you have to be with him. You've got to be, you've got to be kind of tuned in. And when you aren't, it, it, it doesn't work. And you might think that's because, well, you know, oh, we're all out of tune. It's not that. It's not that. Let me, let me show you. So in this, in this illustration, um, Craig is the Holy Spirit, right? And I'm a person, okay? So we're gonna, we're gonna play together. We're gonna keep in step with each other, okay? So I'm gonna, let's, we'll do a G. I'll do a G. Right, here we go. Yeah? Is that right? It's good, right? All right, let's do, um, they didn't like it. Let's do a D. D, let's play D. Are you, um, are you doing it wrong? Do you, um, like, are you, I mean, did you know anything about music? So, like, I learned chords because I thought girls were pretty, um, at summer camp. And you, what, have an undergraduate degree from Northwestern in musical composition? So, we'll just let them decide. Thank, thank you, um, Craig. Am I out of tune? Am I out of tune? Okay, Craig's gone, right? Am I out of tune? I'm not out of tune, am I? I'm out of tune with him. I'm tuned differently. My, my key, what I'm in, it's just this different thing, right? John Owen said this about the flesh. He said, listen, if you don't kill the flesh, that other thing that you desire, that's the key you're in. It's not that you're out of tune. You're in perfect tune. Everything's all ordered. Your flesh loves to order stuff. You're all ordered about around the thing you really love. But if you keep in step with the Spirit, you have to be in tuned with Him. But here's the beauty of it. You see, several verses earlier, he said, walk with the Spirit, right? Walk with the Spirit. And then he gets down to this verse, and he, he could have said the same thing again. So therefore, because of all these things, I tell you, walk with the Spirit, right? That would have been a good, open, closed, that's good rhetoric, right? But he doesn't. He says, let's keep in step with the Spirit. That's, that's, that's more involved, right? Have you ever done that thing where, like, you, you, you go arms with somebody, and you, like, do this? thing, right? Or have you ever run after, were you ever like when you were a little kid and the snow was high, you were like running after somebody behind you like an older kid, and you realize if you like put your foot in the ho their holes in the snow, you wouldn't get tired near as fast? So you're like, they're stepping here, and you're like stepping in their holes in the snow, and you're like snow pants, just like trying to out, like run out of gas in like a foot and a half of snow. Anybody do that? Right? To do that, you've got to be like looking at the back heel of the, guy, the kid in front of you. Right? You've got, it's like a dance, right? Like, you've got to be right with every beat. There's no, there's no daydreaming unless you know the dance really well. Or like, you're playing football, like, you run the play, you get back in the huddle. You go run the, there's no like, like, what's on my phone? I wonder what's going on. Like, you're like, you're engaged, right? And you see, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, you have to kill the flesh because the flesh will take up all the room. But once you clear it out, listen, you got to walk with the Spirit every second. You stay in step with the Spirit. You're always, you're, on, you're always in this play, right? Every minute you're like, where's the Spirit going? How can I stay with Him? What's going—here we go. Like, 
they're just, when you take every opportunity with the Spirit, there aren't, there aren't any opportunities left for the flesh. The flesh thrives in spiritual idleness, which sometimes is normal idleness, and sometimes it's just mental idleness. But if every minute we are walking with the Spirit so as to keep in step with the Spirit, then by taking every, every opportunity, we leave none for the flesh. <clears throat> you see, most of the people outside the church in your life are going to feel like if you believe absolutely deeply in Jesus, that he's died for you, that he's making you to be like him, that he's filled you with the Spirit, that he's made you a new creation, that he's done these things in you and are, is doing these things in you, most of them are going to believe that you're enslaved. They're going to think that your mind is closed and that you can't do fun stuff and that your life isn't going to be as happy and that you're just playing it safe or something and that you can't handle real freedom. You decided to, to be looked over by religion rather than really be a free person. That's what most people are going to think and some of, you, some of them are going to tell you so, especially if they have tenure. But what Jesus says is that all humanity stands enslaved in their self-justification and in their self-gratification. And that there's actually only one way to be free. And that is to get rid of the self-justification and the standard to try to live up to the law by looking to the one that was the fulfillment of all the law, Jesus himself. And then to throw away the self-gratification plan and to not live according to the desires of the flesh, but to live according to the desires of the Spirit of God inside of you that comes when you look to Christ and turn to him. So that in looking to Christ and walking in the Spirit, you can stand firm in freedom. And you can be in the miraculous state of freedom. And you can experience the increasing death of the flesh and its increasingly loss of its clutches on the image of God in you that is rising up in the redemption of Jesus to be the human you were created to be so that you, as you gain your freedom, you're actually gaining your very self. That is the freedom Jesus offers. The worship team is going to come up here. And as we do the last song, I, I, want, to, I want to encourage you to look at one of these six things. Okay? You, it's, there's six points. You can go back and look at a sermon another time. But as, as you think about what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, I want you to pick one of seven applications, okay? Application one, do you or do you not belong to Jesus? Have you or haven't you put your full faith in Jesus— and, and ch chosen to get on the Jesus and walk in the Spirit plan and to get off the self-justification, self-gratification plan? Do you want to be free? Have you received and taken a hold of that freedom in Christ yet? Have you believed in Jesus? If you haven't, there is no day like right this second. Okay. If you do belong to Jesus and you recognize that you're not every step in step with the Spirit, where's the, what's the one that needs your attention right now? What's the flesh yelling at you right this second? Don't listen to that. What was your least favorite point? Or what is the point that the Spirit is saying, maybe not loudly, but clearly, you need to listen to? Expr just expressing love? That what faith looks like is expressing love. Is that what your day is full of? Is that what you woke up this morning thinking your day was supposed to be full of? Do you hope for the righteousness of Christ, the real righteousness of Christ in virtue and character? Are you longing that by faith, through the Spirit, you could increasingly receive that? Is your mind 
captivated by that? Are you astonished that Jesus in his divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness? Do you respond? Are you ready to respond to the desires of the Spirit? When your flesh is saying, I want to do this, and there's a clear but not as loud voice that says, we're not doing that. Are you ready to listen to the less loud voice believing that he's leading you in a better direction? Have you been walking with Jesus long enough, but you continually allow yourself to pretend you don't know what you know? Are you allowing the flesh to so manipulate your mind and so lead you into self-deception, that stuff that is utterly plain in the Bible, totally clear in the teachings of Jesus, but you just don't want to face it. You don't want to deal with it. You don't—the implications for you seem catastrophic. You're like Augustine, oh God, give me chastity, but not yet. Do you, do you have to realize, do you have to admit that you know what you know and do something with that? Have you turned away out of spiritual squeamishness from the spiritual brutality it's going to take to get free of the flesh? Have you picked up the hammer? Are you ready to drive the nail into what feels like your own leg to be free? Or do you need to think more moment by moment? Are you spiritually idle all the time? Do you not constantly think in terms of, where is God taking me? Where is God taking me? What does it look like to be a Christian in this moment? Where is God taking me at this moment? How am I, how do, how do I, how do I make this corn dog in Christ? How do I deal with that customer? How do I, how do I get through this day of school? How do I deal with the fact I'm about to leave this class and I know I'm going to get bullied by those three girls? How, how am I going to do that in step with the Spirit? Or are you spiritually idle? What, do you, what needs to happen? As we sing the song, sing it if you want to. But think about it. one of those. One of those. One of them, the, the flesh is screaming not to listen to. One of them, the Spirit is telling you to deal with. Pray, think, reflect, convict, confess, choose to act in the next five minutes. Because the minute you walk out of here, the flesh is going to show you a bus and a piece of grass and somebody cutting you off, and it's going to say, this is real life. Not that experience you were having in there. Let's, let's stand and sing together.